You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is Lecture 9, given on December 12, 1911. It is entitled Franz Brentano and Aristotle's Doctrine of the Spirit. Contrary to modern usage, the human being's total makeup will be described here as consisting of three elements, the physical, the soul, and the spiritual. This division, of course, is no different from what we are accustomed to in spiritual science. In these lectures, however, we want to build a bridge from spiritual science to the natural scientific approach in this area. Consequently, we will also consider what is normal for such deliberation of the human being in the modern sciences outside spiritual science. For a long time now, the total makeup of the human being has been viewed as consisting of only two parts, the physical or bodily nature and the soul. This has been true even when no open or veiled materialism was involved. Recognized science is not accustomed to speaking of spirit. Indeed, when the Catholic philosopher Anton Günther reverted to a threefold perspective of the human being as body, soul, and spirit, his books, which were interesting from that perspective, were placed on the list of forbidden books by the Church in Rome. Footnote Anton Günther, 1783-1826, a speculative Catholic theologian, placed on the Index in 1857. End of footnote. The Catholic Church acted contrary to the Bible, where it can be shown in both the Old and New Testaments that human nature is threefold and that we can speak of a body, soul, and spirit. Relatively early, in the very first centuries, the Church prohibited the spirit. That means that in a certain sense it led to the evolution of dogma in such a way that the human being may consist only of body and soul. <clears throat> Philosophers of the Middle Ages considered it highly heretical to accept a threefold makeup, and this applies today to all those who still base their beliefs on that philosophical outlook. This is still considered to be absolutely heretical in the Catholic Church today. Oddly enough, the Catholic view has made its way into contemporary science. If you try to understand why people working today in the science of psychology, the science of the soul, speak essentially only of body and soul rather than of body, soul and spirit, there can hardly be any other basis for such a perspective than the fact that over the course of time spirit was forgotten. Therefore people today no longer have, within their normal thinking, any way of achieving an idea or concept that would enable them to speak of the human spirit as a separate element in addition to the soul. In this introduction, which may contain concepts that sound foreign to the circle of theosophists, since the corresponding literature is not known here, we must, however, draw attention to the threads 
that connect us to what otherwise exists as psychology. You can see from what I've just said that we can scarcely find any doctrine of the spirit aside from Hegel's philosophy. That hardly deserves such a designation, however, since essentially it is also merely a kind of doctrine of the soul. We covered that area a year ago in what, we, in what was termed psychosophy. Our time has become strangely accustomed to thinking without any concept of spirit. We can see the extent of this view by looking, by way of introduction, at the work of a psychologist whom we must also consider, from a spiritual scientific perspective, as the most outstanding research psychologist among all those who lack a spiritual scientific orientation. I am referring to Franz Brentano. We see in this most significant psychologist of whom I spoke in last year's lectures on psychosophy to what degree it is possible, from a standpoint outside spiritual science, to approach what spiritual science has to say about the soul based on pure science rather than clairvoyance. We can see in this very important psychologist, not oriented toward spiritual science, how the modern thought habits work in preventing people from developing any idea or concept of spirit. Franz Bentano wrote a strange work on psychology, which I referred to last year, or I should say he intended to write it. The first volume appeared in the spring of 1874, with the promise of another volume in the autumn. There were to be further volumes in quick succession. The first is the only one that appeared. Nevertheless, a new edition was published very recently. It was not the whole volume, but only a part of the 1874 edition, a special chapter on classifying psychological phenomena. It was published simultaneously in German and Italian. An appendix was added to what was written in 1874. <clears throat> Considering the promise displayed in the first volume of Brentano's title, Psychology, adherence of spiritual science have reason to bewail the fact that more volumes did not appear. A year ago, however, I reported that the reason for this could be easily understood from a spiritual scientific perspective. As those with a spiritual scientific view will realize, the current scientific orientation made it impossible to continue the series using the assumptions that were the basis for the first volume. Brentano wanted to work on his psychology in the 1870s in keeping with all the thinking habits of modern science. He took particular pride in not going along with a materialistic bias, his own direction was just the opposite, and proceeding instead purely meth methodically. He prided himself on pursuing his research entirely in keeping with the prevailing scientific methodology of the time. He intended to produce a psychology that accorded perfectly with the spirit of modern scientific methodology. When we note that there was to be a discussion of the question of immortality, among other highly interesting topics promised in his first volume, we must of course be painfully disappointed that no more appeared. Do not be surprised that I speak this way about a book of this kind, particularly from the perspective of spiritual science. I had to consider this book and its fate Indeed, in terms of science, I find the whole scientific fate of its author symptomatic of and extraordinarily important for our time and for what one can 
call pneumatosophy today because it promised to discuss the soul's immortality. If, as may be gathered from several of Brentano's remarks, he expresses himself obliquely as intending to prove not the fact of immortality itself, but that hope of immortality can be justified, please note the difference, then we must agree that this is an extremely interesting fact for the character of current psychological thinking. Brentano, however, did not succeed in producing more than the first volume. It contains only his dispute with other schools of psychology and lays a foundation for a scientific method in the psychological field, as well as the previously mentioned classification of the soul's activities or capacities. Nothing further ever appeared except for the new edition of one section of the book. The reasons for this are extremely significant and will have to be discussed in this series of lectures. Some of the reasons have to be addressed from a spiritual scientific standpoint because they relate to the way in which modern science regards the soul, failing to see the spirit as something separate from it. I won't take any of the short time we have here to characterize the human soul, which we covered last year. To connect it to the current scientific thinking, however, I will have to use this introduction to discuss Brentano's classification of human soul faculties as it appears in the new edition. Brentano, a modern psychologist of the greatest significance in his regard for spiritual science, classifies the soul faculties not not into the usual categories of thinking, feeling, and willing, but in a very different way as mental picturing, judging, and the phenomena of love and hate, or the emotions. You will be reminded immediately of its similarity to what the psychosophic lectures of a year ago presented from an entirely different source. I need not comment on what mental picturing is in our sense, since these things have been spoken of so often in spiritual science. And we need not go into the concept of a mental picture as such, in relation to what we have to say as an introduction introduction to Brentano's psychology. For us, the content of mental picturing is clear, when we recall, regardless of how it is otherwise defined, that we think of mental picturing as the recalling of some thought content in the soul. A mental picture is any thought content that is present in the soul and is not in some way connected with an emotion or with anything that is a declaration in connection with something objective. Judging differs from mental picturing in the previously characterized psychology. Judging is usually said to be a fusing of concepts. A quote-unquote rose, for example, would be a concept described as a mental picture, and quote-unquote red as another, but to say, quote, the rose is red, unquote, is a judgment. Brentano says that a quote-unquote fusion of concepts does not characterize a judgment. If we say the rose is red, however, either we mean nothing special, or if we do, another sentence is hidden within it. In other words, we are saying that the red rose is, asserting that there is a red rose among the things of reality. We will have to note Brentano's definition of judging in order to lay a scientific foundation for pneumatosophy. 
as you can see from superficial observation of your own soul content, there is much that is correct in such a view. Indeed, when we say the rose is red, what has been accomplished beyond the creation of a mental picture? There is no essential distinction between imagining rose and red or fusing the concepts. We are still involved in picturing. I do no more with the rose is red than I do when picturing rose and red. To recognize that the red rose is is an admission essentially different from a mere fusing of concepts, however, for it points to something beyond mental picturing, something not limited to it, that is, to the determination of a reality. To say the rose is red states only that the mental images red and rose both exist in someone's soul. It is merely a statement about a thought content. At the moment, however, when something is ascertained and the statement is made that the red rose is, we then have a judgment in Brentano's sense. According to him, we have no right to speak of transcending the idea of a mental image when merely fusing mental images. We transcend mental picturing only when something is expressed in the life of mental images that is an ascertainment. It is not possible here to go into all of Brentano's brilliant reasoning for his distinctions between mental picturing and judging. Brentano then distinguishes a third member of the soul, however, the emotions, or phenomena of love and hate. They too are different from a simple determination. If I say, a red rose is, this is not the same as having a feeling about the rose. Feelings are manifestations of the soul belonging to a special class that we may categorize as emotions. Feelings represent not only a determination about the object presented by our mental picturing, but also something about how the soul experiences the subject. <clears throat> Brentano, however, does not specifically mention will phenomena, because, essentially, he does not find enough difference between the will and the phenomena of love and hate or other emotions. What we love, we will with love, and the will that is connected with an object is also included in our feelings of kindness. In terms of hate, quote, not wanting, unquote, or rejection is also a given. Therefore it seems unjustified to describe will as separate from love and hate in the same way that separating judgments from mere mental images is justified. Thus we have, so to speak, divided the human soul into mental picturing, judging, and the manifestations of the emotions. It is extremely interesting that such a keen thinker divided concepts in this way when he set out to lay the foundation for his psychology. As you will perhaps gather from the commentary today and tomorrow, it is because we have a man here who takes seriously the usual disregard for the spirit. Others have always mixed what are in fact spiritual phenomena into the life of the soul. This inclination led to the creation of a strange hybrid, a kind of spirit soul or soul spirit. All kinds of things could be attributed to the spirit soul, characteristics that, for someone working in an orderly way based on the threefold nature of the human being, would have to be ascribed to the spirit rather than the soul. Brentano, however, was truly serious 
about answering the question of what could actually be discovered in the soul as such. He was acute enough to discern what had to be excluded from the concepts of the soul when spirit is eliminated from consideration. Through taking this tendency seriously, he divided, as it were, the soul cleanly from the spirit. It would have been very interesting to see how, if he had continued his work, Brentano would have found that it had to end somewhere, because in reality the soul must receive the spirit and enter into a relationship with it. Otherwise, he would have had to acknowledge the necessity of progressing from the soul to spirit. Let us look at the two most remote elements of Brentano's classification, mental picturing and the emotions or the phenomena of love and hate, disregarding judgment. In Brentano's conceiving, mental picturing is simply something going on in the soul. Nothing is ascertained through our mental picturing. Making a determination about something real means that judging has to enter into it. This being so, the soul life is not only mental picturing. <clears throat> that would amount to saying that mental picturing is not able to lead of itself to a determination, that it would be impossible to get outside the soul in mental picturing, for only in judging can we get out of the soul, not in mental picturing. On the other hand, it is interesting that Brentano assigns all manifestations of the will to the manifestations of the emotions. There is certainly a good deal to be said for maintaining that the soul's relationship to the world is summed up in the emotions. You can indeed maintain that, basically speaking, the soul contains nothing but emotions. If they are strong enough, they will do they will this or that. No psychologist can find anything in the soul but sympathy or antipathy or the phenomena of love and hate. Even where people's wills are deeply involved, they act, but while they are acting, nothing can be discovered in their souls but the phenomena of love or hate. That is how it is within the soul. If we now go on to the whole reality, we have to say that the relationship of the soul to the external world does not consist only of the soul's emotional experiences. It is, of course, a step that must be taken, but not wholly within the soul. <clears throat> if we are to go from an emotion to what then becomes will, it must be done out of the soul. The will does not have its totality within the soul, but only when the soul goes out of itself. No matter how much we may love an object or a fact, and no matter how great a role our emotions play in us, that hasn't made anything happen. A great deal of emotional agitation may go on in the soul, but that must be disregarded if something is supposed to happen. Mental picturing, therefore, confronts us in this type of psychology as an activity that does not go beyond itself into reality, and thus the emotions stand there without any ties to true willing, merely as preconditions of the soul to will. <clears throat> this is a matter of extraordinary interest. We will see that in mental picturing the spirit enters the scene at the exact point where Brentano ended his characterizing. In mental picturing the bridge leading from the soul to the spirit begins exactly at the place where, if it were not there, 
and the soul were not confronting the spirit, mental picturing would remain self-limited. We will see, on the other hand, that wherever a real transition is made, from the emotions to the will, the spirit in turn enters in. We see here in a significant scientific accomplishment of the last decades how investigation breaks off at the exact point where spiritual scientific research has to enter the picture if the investigation is to be carried further. And it is interesting to see how the keenest thinkers have to work on the basis of the thought habits of the day. It could not be otherwise. Going on to other matters, the interesting threads linking today's scientific psychology with spiritual science become apparent in the case of this same man. Those who have concerned themselves with Brentano's writings have always been aware of his intense preoccupation with the Greek philosopher Aristotle throughout almost the whole extent of his professional life. By a strange coincidence, a book by Brentano, Brentano entitled, titled Aristotle and His Worldview, which contained his research on that philosopher, has just now appeared, giving us an opportunity that was not available three weeks ago. We can now acquaint ourselves with all the research he did on Aristotle during his long lifetime. Brentano does not, of course, view the world in the twentieth century exactly as Aristotle did, but he stands in a certain close relationship to him and presents Aristotle's view of the spirit in a very open-minded, admirable way in this book. This is furthered by the fact that still another book by Brentano, bearing the title Aristotle's Doctrine of the Origin of the Human Spirit has also appeared. It will be useful to say a word or two about this book, because Brentano is, in certain respects, not only the most interesting psychologist of modern times, but also the most significant authority on Aristotle's doctrine of the spirit. Let us take a brief look at it. We find in Aristotle a doctrine of the spirit established centuries before the birth of Christianity, and hence uninfluenced by Christian concepts. It was, in a certain sense, however, a compendium of everything represented by the culture of the Occident in the last centuries before the advent of Christianity. That culture had absorbed all that philosophy had achieved with regard to insight into the spirit. It was therefore possible for Aristotle to think scientifically, in the 4th century B.C. about this matter, about the relationship of the spirit to the soul. Anyone who takes into account Brentano's position on Aristotle, as reflected in the two previously mentioned books, where one can sense so clearly how he thought about Aristotle, to the point of sharing his views on the major questions, will find it extraordinarily interesting to what, in, what extent a doctrine of the spirit that is not spiritual scientific is justified in going beyond Aristotle. <clears throat> it is also extremely interesting to compare the Aristotelian and theosophical doctrines of the spirit, insofar as the latter is scientific. I would like now to sketch the Aristotelian doctrine without going into a special substantiation of it. Aristotle speaks unmistakably of the spirit in relation to the human soul and body. He speaks of the spirit without the slightest trace of materialistic bias, referring to it as something added to the soul and body out of the spiritual world. 
That is a matter with which Brentano is found in complete agreement, for Brentano, like Aristotle, has to speak of the spirit as an addition to the soul and body if he has no other explanation for it. When human beings are born into existence on the physical plane, what is involved, in Aristotle's sense, is not really the product of a series of ancestors, though we first encounter inherited attributes of an ancestral line. Aristotle sees these attributes as constituting the soul, making the soul, in his view, ensoul and maintain the body. Both in his view and in that of Brentano, however, this inherited body-soul complex is not the human essence in its entirety. The spirit also has to be included. Speaking in Aristotle's sense, we would, therefore, have to say that when we are born onto the physical plane, the inherited body-soul complex is united with the spirit. What, according to Aristotle, is the spirit's origin? Aristotle held that our spirits simply did not exist before our birth into the physical world. He held that they appear with every birth on the physical plane as a new creation out of the spiritual world, as a divine creation added to what is inherited from the parents. Brentano states clearly in his book on Aristotle that we embark on physical existence as products of the creative cooperation of our parents and God. He means that the physical body and the soul element are inherited from father and mother, and after a certain lapse of time following conception, God adds the human spirit to the complex. It is interesting to see how Aristotle, who assumes that God adds the human spirit to the soul element by a true act of creation, thinks about immortality. What we would refer to as the incarnated human spirit is not present before birth. God creates it. For both Aristotle and Brentano, however, it does not follow that the spirit ceases to exist at the death of the body-soul complex. The spirit, thus newly created, continues on after death, in spite of having been created for this specific human being, and passes through the gates of death into a supersensible world, in the same sense that our own use of that term conveys. It is interesting, too, that Aristotle and Brentano, who seems still to be taking the Aristotelian view, trace the human spirit passing into a purely spiritual world. In other words, Aristotle sees this individual spirit, newly created by God, as living on. All investigators of Aristotle seem to agree that there can be no question of any return of this still living spirit into further bodily incarnations. He doesn't accept reincarnation. It would lead us too far afield to go into detail on much of Aristotle's purely logical argumentation showing why he did not accept reincarnation. All we really need to do, however, is to consider Aristotle's premise of the human being's origin as a creation of the human spirit by God, a process that he saw continuing throughout all time to come, a return to incarnation by spirits that had lived before could not be looked upon as a new creation. It would not be a new creation if all the old spirits would reincarnate, and it would negate all the theories of a spirit that had already been in a human being were to reincarnate. Excuse me, let me read that again. 
It would not be a new creation if all the old spirits would reincarnate, and it would negate all the theories if a spirit that had already been in a human being were to reincarnate. New creation could no longer be spoken of. Thus the teaching of reincarnation by Aristotle would stand in contradiction to his creation. It is a very strange thing, as Brentano's commentary on Aristotle shows, that Aristotle had no other conception of the life of the human spirit after death than that the spirit was actually in a more or less theoretical situation. Any activity that Aristotle can describe presupposes a physical world and a physical body. In his view, the spirit, and this includes the everlasting spirit of God, is engaged in merely theoretical or contemplative activity. This means that there was scarcely room in his conceiving for anything more characteristic of the life of the human spirit after death than contemplation of its life from birth to death, a looking down of the soul on that life from the spiritual world. Not that Aristotle envisioned this as precluding any further development of the soul, because in Aristotle's picturing this life was significant for the soul, however, the soul had to look down on it continuously, experiencing it as particularly significant and basing its further progress on this one life. That is how he saw the spirit after death, looking back on its life on earth with all its events, its shortcomings and merits, one perhaps seeing an excellent life and basing further development on it, and another contemplating a life of dishonor and crime and having that as a basis for further development. That is approximately Aristotle's picturing of the relationship of the spirit to the soul and body. Let us ask ourselves how this view of the spirit looks to unprejudiced thinking. It is fully clear that Aristotle does not conceive life on earth to be a wretched episode in the total range of human existence, a time without significance for further development. There is no question of that with Aristotle. He saw life here as meaningful in a good sense and is exceedingly important. Much is not clear about his view of the soul's further progress after death, but one thing is certain, that this single earth life is of essential importance for the soul's whole future progress. Even though God created this human spirit, which then appeared only in a single incarnation, he could still take pains to assure its further development despite the lack of more incarnations. We see that Aristotle insisted on a single incarnation as a goal of the Godhead and that in his view it served a divine purpose as well to lead the human being to an earthly human body. Aristotle thought that it lay in the intention of the Godhead not just to create the indwelling human spirit but to do so in a way that necessitated clothing it in a physical body for its further progress. From the moment of its creation for descent into an earthly body, the human spirit is motivated to enter earthly existence. It is impossible to conceive of the divinely created human spirit as lacking the longing to incarnate in a human body. Now picture, as Aristotle did, that this human spirit discarded the body, passing through the gates of death into the spiritual world and looking back on its incarnation. 
Let us suppose that as it looks back on its life on earth, it finds that life imperfect. Why should it not be a matter of course for most human spirits passing through the gates of death to feel that the earth existence has been imperfect? For no matter how perfect it may have seemed, there was still room within this earthly life to achieve something still more perfect. In the sense of Aristotle, we must thus recognize in these disincarnated spirits a perfectly natural longing for further bodily incarnations. The spirit needs physical incarnation in order to perfect itself. And if a single incarnation does not accomplish that, it naturally longs to have another one. Otherwise it would fail completely to achieve its goal. It is therefore impossible to conceive of a purposeful single incarnation in the sense of Aristotle unless such a one-time life were to mean the attainment of a perfect stage of development for the progress of the human spirit. The moment we admit that an earth life is not perfect, we also have to admit that the divinely created spirit necessarily experiences a longing for another earthly body. Just consider this strange divine creation envisioned by Aristotle. It produces a human spirit that takes on a physical body and leaves it at death. But if we accept Aristotle's view, necessarily longs for another physical body without any possibility of entering one again. <clears throat> for the fact is that Aristotle rejects reincarnation seeing the human spirit as living on after death in a spiritual world with a constant desire for a new incarnation never to be fulfilled. Aristotle's doctrine requires reincarnation, but rejects it. We will see that from another viewpoint. Aristotle must reject reincarnation. We confront here a doctrine of the spirit that is by no means materialistic, one that might even be thought of as the West's most intelligent such doctrine still known today excluding that of spiritual science. You read Brentano and sense how unequivocally he agrees with Aristotle that God, together with a father and a mother, brings forth the spirit for the body-soul element and that this divinely created spirit passes at death into a spiritual world. The God who, according to this assumption, creates the spirit allows it only one incarnation, however, and endows it with an ongoing longing to live that life in a way that permits the spirit really to accomplish its task. We see here how something had, that had its origin millennia ago still exercises a powerful influence on present-day science, justifiably so. We will see that Aristotle's greatness and significance are due to the penetrating intelligence of the conclusions arrived at in his doctrine of the spirit, and that, it is and that it is possible to progress beyond them only if a scientific basis is provided for reincarnation. Such a basis was never provided before our times. We have only just reached the point of transition with regard to the doctrine of the spirit where we can, essentially only through spiritual science, go beyond Aristotle in a true and fundamental way. It is interesting that a man as keen as Brentano has had to stop short at Aristotle's point of view, but was forced, on the other hand, by that very acuity to end up with nothing more than a psychology, because he took the exclusion of the spirit seriously. We will see from the mistakes made 
by the fact that the exclusion of the spirit led to a self-contradictory doctrine of the spirit, or rather of the soul, that from the standpoint of modern science it is impossible to arrive at a non-contradictory view of the world if spiritual science is ignored. The end of lecture 9